Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 125, War and Revolt in Tuscany, 1348 to 1382. In the last episode, we followed Giovanni Boccaccio as he took us on a rather gruesome tour of the Great Plague of 1348, as it hit Florence. Numbers varied, but it seems Florence may have lost 50 to 60,000 inhabitants, down from around 100,000 at its peak, a number that it would not reach again until the 19th century. More precise numbering would come around in 1427, when an official register of the inhabitants was created. The situation that followed was similar to that in many countries in Europe. Huge reduction in the number of agricultural and factory workers with subsequent increased negotiation power of the low-level workers and the reaction of the rich middle class and nobility to curb said power. This added to the already existing class struggles, not only in Florence but all over Europe. Indeed, the 14th century was one of great turmoil all over Italy, as well as in France, the Netherlands, Poland, and in England, just to name a few. From the 1350s to the 1370s, tensions continued to rise. As we mentioned in the last episode, the lower levels of society, the workers who were not represented by guilds, were starting to chafe under the system which kept them oppressed and in poverty. They were totally excluded from power, which was open only to those who were actually members of one of the guilds. The government system in Florence at the time was a bit of a mix. First of all, Florence had been divided into four main areas under the four main churches, and they were Santa Maria Novella, San Giovanni, Santa Croce, and Santo Spirito. From each area would come four gonfalonieri, with this group acting as a sort of council alongside that of the main government of the priori, themselves headed by another gonfaloniere, which acted as a sort of prime minister, if you will. Tensions remained high throughout all of this period, with constant grumbling of the popolo minuto, the small people, not that they were all short or anything, but they were the plebs, against the popolo grasso, the rich part of society, the fat part. With continuous unrest, and even the nobles getting in on the action with a plot to overthrow the bourgeois government in 1368. Although things continued to simmer, they had not reached boiling point again since the rebellion of Ciuta Brandini in 1345, which we spoke about in the last episode. Things came to a head starting in 1370, but not in Florence. 
Indeed, those years saw unrest first in Perugia, which is not actually Tuscany, but close enough, and in the city of Siena, where in 1371, the Contrada of the Bruco, the caterpillar or silkworm, had a relatively successful rebellion, which resulted in the steps being taken against the more reactionary part of the existing government, but with no real long-term improvements in the workers' situation. It would be worth doing a whole episode on the Contrade, the areas in which the city of Siena is divided, To this day, they are relevant because every year they have the Palio di Siena, a rather violent horse race that pits the various areas of the city against each other, stirring up ancient rivalries. Anyway, heading back to Florence, it was under a government that had a high percentage of the lesser arts. Remember that the lesser arts still didn't include the poor workers outside of the guilds that the whole business of the War of the Eight Saints kicked off. In 1375, Pope Gregory XI was preparing the ground for a return of the papacy to Rome. He sent a series of papal legates to reorganize the papal states, which, you will remember, included not only the area around Rome, but also stretches of land going up through Umbria and up to the Romagna region. The citizens of these areas had by now grown accustomed to not having the Pope around to meddle in their affairs, and they were particularly unhappy with these foreign legates coming along and wanting to boss them around in the name of a feudal lord that had by now been away for over 70 years. It is in this period that a request from Florence arrived on the desk of a papal legate to purchase grain from the Umbria area. The request was denied. The representatives of the Florentine government, the representatives of the Florentine government at the time, as we said with a high level of participation of the lesser arts, saw or perhaps wanted to see this as an attempt to weaken the republic ahead of an invasion by the papal forces. It also didn't help that the famous English Condottiero, the warlord John Hawkwood, who had very recently been hired by the Pope, had entered Tuscany. Despite the fact that the papal legate denied that Hawkwood was still working for the Pope, this was enough for Florence to nominate a special emergency government of eight representatives to manage war against the papal states. The government of the eight was particularly good with their PR campaign and managed to put together quite an impressive anti-papal coalition, which included, obviously, Florence, Milan, Lucca, Siena, Pisa, Bologna, who almost always had a bone to pick with the papacy, as well as many other cities. The Pope got out his weapon of mass destruction, laying an interdict on the city of Florence, and expelling the Florentines from Avignon. This hit the Republic where it really hurt, their trade, and was perhaps the most effective move of the war for the Pope. Also, the eight representatives of the emergency government were all excommunicated. From that point on, to show that the cause of Florence was a just one, they were known as the Eight Saints. Meanwhile, the Pope brought in a group of Breton mercenaries known for their particular cruelty, and they laid siege to Bologna on their way down to Florence. 
It is in the siege that we have one of those interesting instances in history. Indeed, since neither side was really interested in a long drawn out siege, they decided to resolve it with a good old duel. The foreign mercenaries squared up against two Italians, Betto Biffoli and Guido da Sciano. The Italians won and the mercenaries lifted the siege and headed off. During the siege of Bologna, we have one of the worst war crimes of this period in Italy that also had echoes in Europe. It regarded the city of Cesena, southeast of Bologna. The city had passed from the control of the Ordelaffi family to that of the Malatesta of Rimini, who supported the Pope and therefore offered hospitality in the city to Cardinal Robert of Geneva, who would later become anti-Pope Clement VII. One day, a fight between the Breton mercenaries and a group of local butchers degenerated into all-out rebellion, and at first the mercenaries took a pretty bad beating, with a couple hundred of them being killed. The papal legate was forced to close himself up in the city fortress to avoid the anger of the mob. He was able to stop the revolt by calling in John Hawkwood. At the sight of the reinforcements, the rebels, with the promise of being pardoned, laid down their arms. Cardinal Robert then ordered Hawkwood to massacre every man, woman and child as an example to the other cities. Robert of Geneva, as well as being anti-Pope Clement VII, went down in history in the area as the Butcher of Cesena. How is that for spreading the word of the peaceful carpenter of Nazareth? John Hawkwood would then pass into the employment of the Republic of Florence. In the end, not a lot would come from the War of the Eight Saints. We have seen that the return to Rome of the papacy would kick off the Great Western Schism, which would not be resolved until 1417. A peace was reached, thanks also to the mediation of Catherine of Siena, who we will be dedicating an episode to, and Florence got off more or less easy by having to pay a hefty fine of 350,000 florins, which they did not end up paying in full. The proceedings were interrupted, but then perhaps helped along by the change of Pope. Indeed, Gregor XI died, and the peace was actually signed by Urban VI. The basic failure of the War of the Eight Saints had heavy economic consequences on Florence's economy, and soon the minor arts started to protest against the ruling class of the major arts. As the protests grew in intensity and violence, they were joined by our old friends, the Chompi. You may remember that these were the workers in the wool trade that were not represented by any guild. Their great numbers allowed them to dominate the protest, and indeed the revolt that followed went down in history as the Tumulto dei Chompi, the revolt of the Chompi. The revolt was initially successful, and the Chompi even managed to get their main representative, Michele di Lando, elected as gonfaloniere. They also received recognition when they were finally granted one of their main requests, 
the guild of the Chompi was formed, along with that of the Carders and Dyers. However, this situation did not last long at all. Michele di Lando soon showed that he did not have the political skills to navigate the murky waters of the Signoria, the government of Florence. He was soon seen as collaborating with members of the higher arts and even ended up using force to put down further rebellions by his own Chompi, leading to a bloody battle in Piazza della Signoria in Florence. The three new guilds that had been formed were disbanded. Despite the failure of the revolt, not all of the policies that the Chompi had demanded were abandoned, such as taxes on wealthy property. This leaning towards the rights of the lower classes would be, in part, picked up as the Republic of Florence slowly died, becoming a signoria in the hands of a single family. Between 1378 and 1382, control was gradually taken back by the oligarchy formed by the great families of the city, such as the Pitti, the Acciaioli, the Caponi and the Albizzi. It is the latter family in particular, the Albizzi, who rose to prominence, but not in a very obvious way that would alarm the freedom-loving Florentines, but as masters of political subterfuge, managing to manoeuvre voting and putting key people in places of influence. It really seemed like they could eventually take over the Signoria, and, before anyone could realise what was going on, turn it into a one-family hereditary rule. That, however, was not to be the destiny of the Albizzi. That destiny was reserved for another family. Before we go there, however, Florence and all of Tuscany would face once again a great existential danger in the form of one Gian Galeazzo Visconti, the first Duke of Milan. Thank you very, very much for listening. I would in particular love to thank my ever-faithful Patreon supporters, starting from the first half of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, and that is Alison H, Amanda D, Anthony G, Bill S, Brian J, Callan, Carrie W, Celine, Dean V, Dominic T, Emily B, Federica R, Francisco A, Gabriel S, Greg Ignacio, Il Valentino James C, Jane J, Jeff M, Jeffrey W, Joseph S, Juan Diego, Julia G, and Old John in Milwaukee. Obviously, I also want to thank the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Brandon S, David A, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Rinat, David C, and Sen. Thank you, thank you, one and all. If, like them, you would like to have access to extra content, we're reaching about 100 episodes on Patreon now, and that includes the News Cappuccino feature, the sketches that you hear at the end of some of the episodes, and in the time it takes in which I answer questions from Patreons. 
then you can go to the support page of the site uh, historyofitaly.com and click through to Patreon or go directly to patreon.com forward slash a history of Italy. Thank you very much if you decide to do so. If you just want to get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. I would love to interact with you. And you can also do that on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. And in all three cases, you simply have to look for A History of Italy. Thanks again very much for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.